Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Near this spot are deposited the remains of one who possessed beauty without vanity, Strength without insolence, courage without ferocity, and all the virtues of man without his vices. This praise, which would be unmeaning flattery if inscribed over human ashes, is but a just tribute to the memory of Boson, a dog, who was born in Newfoundland, May 1803, and died at Newstead, November the 18th, 18. So, Tom Holland, those are the words written by Lord Byron's friend John Cam Hobhouse on the urn of the dog, Boson and Newstead Abbey, aren't they? Very moving tribute. Tremendously moving. And and Byron wrote something himself, didn't he, about uh, this dog? Well, yeah, so so um, inscribed on this tomb, which is in the grounds of Newstead Abbey, Byron's ancestral home, you have an entire poem by Byron, uh, which concludes with the splendid couplet, To mark a friend's remains, these stones arise. I never knew but one, and here he lies. Oh. So man's best friend, Dominic. And that's the theme of today's uh, episode. We have chosen the seven greatest dogs in history. The Magnificent Seven. <laughs> so Tom, I'm delighted you've cho- chosen this because this is your topic. And what surprises me is that you're more of a cat person yourself. Aren't you? No, I love dogs as well. Do you? Yeah, I do. But because uh, I live in London, I don't. I, it's easier to have cats. Of course. You know, you, otherwise you have to kind of go around with bags, scooping up poo and it's all a bit horrid. I'm going to betray my, my hand here. I'm very much team dog. D- Dominic, you astound me. Yeah. I think if I were an animal, I probably would be a dog. Slightly rabid one, perhaps. Yeah, a stray. The kind of stray dog you might find on a Greek island. Well, you'd, you'd, be, you'd be a British bulldog, wouldn't you? Oh, that's kind. Actually, Boson died of rabies. Did he? Which was very sad. And Byron um, cared nothing for the danger of getting it himself and, and tended it, wiped away the froth from Boson's jaws. Oh, cranky. Very, very touching. So I think this is um, an episode that uh, has lots of touching moments but also some quite sinister moments as well. Yeah. So 
quite a lot of variety. There is one very famous dog who does not feature in this. Uh, and that <gasps> I think is because we have agreed yeah. that um, we will do an entire episode on Leica. I hope I've pronounced that right. Is that your Russian accent? That's my Russian accent. The stray dog from Moscow that was the first dog in space. Okay. And I think that her story would be a wonderful way to um, talk about the beginning of the space race and cosmonauts and all that kind of thing. So Very good. She she will come later. Well, our first dog is a contemporary of Lyca's, I think. Yes. Part of Lyca's generation, in fact. I chose this specially for you. Yeah. So this is Checkers, who's already featured on uh, The Rest is History. Uh, and Checkers is the dog of Richard Nixon. Yeah. So very much a canine friend of the show, Checkers. So Checkers, Tom, do you know what kind of dog checkers was she's spaniel that's right tom that's right and i i can safely say people won't notice this listening to this podcast but we actually had a massive hiatus then for about 10 minutes <laughs> we did more research than we've ever done before on the rest is history what i frantically tried to work out whether checkers was um, male or female because um nixon gives a famous speech about checkers in which he consistently refers to checkers as it She's very Nixon, isn't it? Very Nixon. But Checkers was a black and white cocker spaniel. It was she. The New York Times ran an obituary of Checkers in 1964 and said of her, she had a ferocious bark, but a gentle disposition. Very like Richard Nixon, actually, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> do all the first dogs, so the presidential dog is obviously the first dog. Yeah. Do, do, the, do the first dogs normally get obituaries in the New York Times? No, they don't. But Checkers is a genuinely important political dog. So to set the scene, um, we're in 1952. Uh, Senator Nixon, as he, as he then was, um, had just been chosen by former general Dwight D. Eisenhower as his running mate on the Republican ticket. And, um, Nixon was a slightly controversial choice because he was a sort of, he was a bit of a Republican hatchet man, famous for his sort of attacks on communism and, and so on. And in September 1952, so just a couple of months before the presidential election, the newspapers ran this story that he'd had a, they said it was a, a private slush fund. So the New York Post said, secret rich men's trust fund keeps Nixon in style far beyond his means. Now, as people will remember, if they listen to our Watergate podcast, Nixon was a man of very modest means, modest background, and was very conscious of it. And when he was elected um, senator from California, a group of donors in Southern California, so they're sort of the, the network that basically had backed him into the Senate, they got together and they created a fund to meet his political expenses. Now, this was actually not that uncommon um, in those days. So you had a small expense account as a U.S. senator. But if you're from California, there's a lot of flights back and forth. Washington, you're only covered for one, I think, a year. So this, was, this fund was going to meet his airmail and his travel costs and his telephone bills and sending out newsletters and stuff. And they raised about $18,000. So that's the equivalent of about 10 times that today. And because Nixon was a sort of very disputatious, pugnacious person, the revelation of this fund was a gift to his opponents, and they used it to sort of say he's very sleazy and he's corrupt, I think which was actually a bit unfair because a lot of people had these kinds of funds. And, and Nixon genuinely was not very well off compared with a lot of politicians, so he kind of needed it to meet his expenses. He wasn't you know, paying his kind of gas yeah. bill out of it. He wasn't something. buying motorhomes. or he, was, he wasn't, no, he wasn't <laughs> buying kind of... Kind of caravan type arrangements yes. and, and parking them other people's drives or anything. So um, <laughs> there was there were mounting attacks on Nixon. And Eisenhower, who always really despised Nixon, actually, he's very tempted to drop Nixon from the ticket. So the Eisenhower campaign basically bought time for a TV address and said to Nixon, This is your last chance. You have to explain this on TV. If the public back you will keep you, if they don't back you, 
basically you're out. So Nixon's under immense pressure. He goes on TV, gives this speech, and he says, Pat and I are very poor. There's a, a line he says, which I always like, where he says, uh, Pat doesn't have a mink coat. She has a respectable Republican cloth coat, but I always tell her that she'd look good in anything. Oh, brilliant. And at that point, you know, <laughs> some people are weeping with, you know, lots of people are weeping. Others projectile vomit <laughs> right, all exactly. over the television set. And then he has this fantastic twist where he says, now there's one other thing if, I have to tell you, because if I don't, they will be saying this about me too. We did get one gift. Uh, a man down in Texas heard Pat on the radio mention the fact that our two youngsters, he's got two girls, Julie and Trisha, would like to have a dog. And believe it or not, the day before we left on this campaign trip, we got a message from Union Station in Baltimore. They had a package for us. We went down to get it. You know what it was? It was a little cocker spaniel dog in a crate that he sent all the way from Texas, black and white spotted. And our little girl, Trisha, the six-year-old, she named it Checkers. And you know what? Says Nixon. The kids love the dog. And I just want to say this right now, that regardless of what they say about it, we're going to keep it. Oh, God bless America. Yay for Nixon. Yay for Checkers. It's a true story. So it was a, a Texan salesman called Lou Carroll had genuinely read an article about Pat Nixon, in which she said her girls would like a dog. And he had genuinely sent them a telegram and said, on behalf of the great state of Texas, I'd like you to have this puppy. So the speech is watched by 60 million Americans. Um, which I think is the largest audience in, at that point in history for a political speech. Nixon says in his memoirs, the TV cameraman was crying at the end of the speech. <laughs> the switchboard is jammed with supporters, so Nixon stays on the ticket. His political career is saved. Checkers was sent enough dog food to last her a year, and they got sent leads, they got sent dog toys, they got sent collars. The veteran columnist Walter Lippmann said, it was the most demeaning experience my country has ever had to bear in its history. <laughs> God, well, it's lucky that he died when he did. Hasn't seen what's, what's come later. <laughs> right. The amazing thing <laughs> is that actually behind the checker speech, there's another dog speech, Tom. Oh. So this is actually two dogs in one. Oh, brilliant. Because what Nixon had done is the day before he gave that speech, he had remembered a speech that Franklin D. Roosevelt had given in 1944 when Roosevelt was running for his unprecedented fourth term in office. And um, Roosevelt had been coming under great criticism from the Republicans. And Orson Welles, of all people, had suggested to Roosevelt that he mention his own dog, who was called Fowler. And um, Roosevelt said in this speech, you know, the Republicans are, they're not just content with attacking me and my wife and my sons and my family. They also now include my little dog, Fowler, which was true because the Republicans had been telling this story that um, Roosevelt had left his dog behind on one of the Aleutian Islands and had sent a destroyer in the middle of the war to go back and pick Fowler up, which was completely untrue. But it would have been fair enough even if it had been true. Well, send a destroyer. The American people would rally behind a, a president's love for his dog, wouldn't they? Well, Scottish listeners who might have enjoyed the mention of the um, camper van earlier will enjoy this bit because Roosevelt gave this speech in 1944 to the Teamsters and he said, um, I don't resent my attacks on me by the Republicans. My family don't resent them, but Fowler does resent them because Fowler is Scotch. And being a Scotty, um, as soon as he learned that Republican fiction writers had concocted this story, uh, his Scotch soul was furious. He has not been the same dog since. I have a right to resent and to object to libelous statements about my dog. Yeah. So for Nixon to rip, to sort of basically not rip off this story, but to turn it into this populist kind of mawkish fable, absolutely inflamed Democrats. And so everybody would have picked up the reference. Oh, lots of people would. Yeah, lots of people would. Nixon was always incredibly mawkish, but it was a mawkishness that absolutely resonated with a lot of middle America. 
The funny thing is, Nixon actually slightly resented it being remembered for the dog because he, it was quite a long speech. Yes. So in his memoirs, he always calls it the fund speech, and he barely yeah. mentions checkers at all. Whereas it's remembered as the checkers speech. And Nixon, there's another bit of history with Nixon and dogs, Tom, mm-hmm. because when Nixon did enter the White House, sadly, checkers was dead. Oh. So checkers is the most famous political dog of all time, but never actually got to go in the White House. So when Nixon goes in in 1969, his staff... He didn't stuff her. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. <laughs> His, Put her his, in the Oval Office. His staff bought him a dog, an Irish red setter, whom Nixon called King Timaho. Uh, so there were actually three dogs at that point in the White House because Julie and Trisha still had dogs. They had dogs called Pasha and Vicky. But King Timaho didn't initially take to Nixon. So his staff had to leave trail. They led trails of biscuits all through the White House that led to the Oval Office, oh. to Nixon's desk. And Nixon kept a tin of biscuits. So they bonded eventually, did they? They did bond eventually, I think. There were some stories that uh, his staff, in an attempt to kind of appease the dog, would throw biscuits around the Oval Office and they broke a clock um, <laughs> by, with a dog biscuit. I don't know. Can you break a clock with a dog biscuit? It would have to be quite a heavy, heavy Massive dog biscuit, biscuits. wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's 70s, you know, trying yeah. to... Yeah, I don't know. Maybe do they have dog big... biscuits in America? Are they, are they not dog cookies? Yeah, do they call them dog biscuits? I think they do call know. them dog biscuits. They're just not consistent, Tom. I don't approve of it, but there you go. <laughs> Can't be helped. Right, Dominic, so that's that's our first one. You talked about mawkishness yeah. and you talked about Scotland. Uh-huh. So listeners will probably be able to guess our second dog, which is probably Scotland's most famous dog, absolute star of Edinburgh tourism. And that, of course, is Greyfriars Bobby. Oh, Yes. And this is actually quite a complicated story because... Um, it's a shaggy dog story, Tom. Well, is it? Are, are Sky Terriers shaggy? I'm not sure they are. No. Well, they're shaggy by comparison with humans, I suppose. Anyway, so Grey, so Grey Fries Bobby is, um, he's a Sky Terrier, very long lived, so 17 years, supposed to have lived from 1855 to 1872. And as far as we can tell, the likeliest version of the story, certainly the earliest, is that he belonged to a night watchman who was called John Gray, who was working for the police. So hence the name Bobby. Ah, nice. See, which yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd never got before I read up on this. And um, John Gray was kind of, he was very, very on his up as working as a night watchman through the night was all he could get. Um, he was basically, I mean, just above the breadline. It's 1850s, is it? 1860s, yeah. 1850s, yes. So he'd come to Edinburgh from the countryside. He dies of TB and he's buried in Greyfriars, Kirkyard, which is just off the Royal Mile. And the story goes that every night, the 14 years that, uh, that Bobby has left, he comes and sits on his master's grave to commemorate him. Oh, that's nice. And this becomes an absolute feature of Edinburgh life. And people come and watch him. Um, in due course, in 1867, a- an act is introduced that requires um, dogs to be licensed. And there isn't anyone around who who can license Greyfriars Bobby. So the Lord Provost of Edinburgh himself pays for for Bobby's dog license, buys him a collar. Um, and then when Greyfriars Bobby dies, he is buried in Greyfriars Kirkyard next to his dead master's grave. So it's all very, very touching. He went there every night for 14 years. This is the story. This is the story. And How it, did he know it was his grave? Dominic. Stop asking difficult questions. He did. Okay. Not by the smell, surely. (laughs) It's distinctive odour. Anyway, people are not asking difficult questions like that. They're completely taking it on trust. Okay. And by the time that he dies, the story has, has kind of spread far beyond Edinburgh, far beyond Scotland. So even in London... A lady called Lady Burdett Coots, who is the granddaughter of the founder of the bank, Coots yeah. Bank, which I think the K 
king is that's where he keeps his money isn't it yeah and uh, lady bird at coot sets up a drinking fountain topped by a statue of bobby um opposite the entrance to the graveyard and we've already mentioned um hobhouse's tribute to boson um here is another one uh the, the inscription on this um memorial is a tribute to the affectionate fidelity of greyfriars bobby in 1858 this faithful dog followed the remains of his master to greyfriars churchyard and lingered near the spot until his death in 1872 so there is the answer to your skeptical question he followed the body if lady bird at coots believes it who am i to disagree or oh, tom is there a twist well so you have noticed that perhaps there is something not entirely credible about this story yeah over the course of the decades that follow, the story becomes basically better and better. Of course. So the canonical story, the story that then gets feeds into kind of the various films that have been made, um, was the result of uh, a story written by an American novelist and journalist called Eleanor Atkinson. You astound me, Tom. Who in 1912, she wrote this up as a novel. Right. And has a very, very heartwarming description of Greyfriars Bobby. Go on. He was only a little country dog. The very youngest and smallest and shaggiest of Sky Terriers. Shaggiest. I told you it was a shaggy dog story. Bred on a heathery slope of the Pendlant Hills, where the loudest sound was the bark of a collie or the tinkle of a sheep bell. Did she have the voice of Marilyn Monroe, Tom? That's, 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 what, Amer- <laughs> that's, what, that's what early 20th century American novelists writing <laughs> sentimental <laughs> tales of, of Scottish dogs. I see now where Richard, Nick- where Richard Nixon got his inspiration for the checker speech. <laughs> so in this version... Um, Joel Gray is actually called Old Jock. Of course he is. <laughs> and the story in this is that he is taking Bobby to um, a place that did actually exist on Candlemaker Row in uh, Edinburgh, Trails Temperance Coffee House at one o'clock right. every day for lunch. And at one o'clock in Edinburgh, as people will know who visited it, a gun on Edinburgh Castle sounds. Yeah. And after uh, Old Jock or John Gray or whatever we want to call him has died, whenever the gun goes off at one o'clock, Greyfriars Bobby comes to lunch at Trails Temperance Coffee House. Yeah. And people turn up at Trails Temperance House to watch him. And this is the version that you get in the Disney film. Uh, and it's also feeds into the Lassie film that was made. So in. he's not hanging around at the grave in this story. He is. He's, he's hanging around at the grave and he's going for lunch. <laughs> oh, he's doing both. So he's got a busy social schedule. Right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And so obviously the question is, how true is any of this? Yeah. And, Sounds and eyebrows, true. eyebrows may be raised by the fact that the, the, the newspaper that first breaks the story back in 1864 is the, the Inverness Courier, which is also the newspaper that first breaks the story of the Loch Ness Monster. Oh, so it's certainly true. Definitely true. <laughs> but the thing is, is that actually Bobby was still alive then. So unlike the Loch Ness Monster, we know that Bobby did it did exist. Maybe the Loch Ness Monster is alive there. Don't uh, you? Yeah, but nobody's seen the Loch Ness Monster. Whereas people were regularly seeing this dog going for lunch. People are going to see this dog exactly. So, so there is clearly there is a basis of truth, but there are there are clearly elements of it that isn't true. Right. So the story of him hearing the gun and going to the Trails Temperance Coffee House isn't true because the firing of the gun was inaugurated after it's supposed to have done. Oh, wow. So uh, essentially on the principle of, of Qui Bono, who's benefiting from this, you'd yeah. probably say that it's the owner of Trails Temperance Coffee House. Oh, yes, you would. You would. So it, it may be that that entire thing began as a, a kind of scam originating with John Trail, who owned it. Um, and the other question that um, skeptics have, have asked is, was there more than one dog 
because as I said, uh, Greyfriars Bobby seems to have been very long lived oh. uh, for, a, for, for a stray dog in Edinburgh in the mid 19th century. Yeah. So it's possible that, you know, he died and got replaced. What's this Tom Mallory? Was he even a dog at all? <laughs> yeah, he's definitely a dog. No, the huge bombshell, the massive yeah. question is, yeah. was he actually a Sky Terrier? Okay. Because this is the latest development that took place only last year in uh, 2022. And it's been proposed by Mike, the brilliantly named Mike Macbeth. Continuing <laughs> the Scottish thief. Oh, that's unbelievable. But he's actually Canadian. Mike Macbeth. Yes. That's his name. Yeah, that's his name. Okay. I mean, if he's listening, I hope he's not offended. But well, uh, but he's not Scottish. He's the president of the Canadian Dandy Dinment Terrier Club. The what? Are, and are you a fay with Dandy Dinments? <laughs> No, I'm not. Well, we, we actually had a dandy dinner when I was a child. What is it? They're very sweet terriers and they have kind of little tufted, they're grey and they have little tufts. Dandy Dinmont is a dog. Yes. And it's named after... A sounds car- like a nightclub hostess from the 1950s. No, no, Dominic. It's It sounds like what it is. It sounds like a character from one of Walter Scott's novels. Okay. So that's what it's named after. He's a character who appears in, in uh, Guy Manning, which is one of Scott's novels. And um, they were bred in, first bred in 1842. So every Dandy Dimmit Terrier that there is in the, in the world at the moment can trace his ancestry back to um, the original Dandy Dimmit, who was called Old Ginger. Is that about like the claim that everybody in Britain can trace their ancestry back to Edward III? No, well, maybe it is. But in the case of Dandy Dimmit, I remember that we got a kind of, we got a, a scroll of paper showing the lineage right. for Jakey, okay. our beloved Dandy Dinmont, who I'm very happy to have a reason to mention. And uh, Mike Macbeth, who's president of the Canadian Dandy Dinmont Terrier Club, thinks that perhaps Greyfriars Bobby was actually a Dandy Dinmont. What a bombshell. Yeah. Tom, golly. So this is what he says. There have been so many competing stories about Greyfriars Bobby that the truth has faded like the mist on an Edinburgh morning. But the more I researched him for our book, The Dandy Dinmont Terrier, The True Story of Scotland's Forgotten Breed, the facts led to only one conclusion that Greyfires Bobby had to be a Dandy Dinmont. What an extraordinary coincidence that he's the president of the Dandy <laughs> Dinmont Club. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't think you can reasonably claim, can you, that Greyfires Bobby is, is, I mean, if we're talking about significance, Chequers is much more significant than Greyfires Bobby. Well, not if you're in the Edinburgh Tourist Board. No, no, admittedly. But if you're working for the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Museum, true, there's only one contender. But Dominic, I'm recording this on the banks of the Tweed. Okay. Or Tweed, as we locals call it. Uh, and so... Edinburgh is much closer to me than well, California. We'll so. agree to differ on that. I mean, I would say that Greyfriars Bobby is definitely one of the, the, I mean, absolutely very famous dog, don't you think? It's famous, but it's not, it's, not, it's not significant in the evolution of populism, as Chequers is. Well, and talking about the evolution of populism. Yeah. Who's number three? Our third dog is, so we've had one dog owned by um, a sinister right-wing leader, and now yeah. we have another <laughs> Another dog owned by a sinister right-wing leader. Does Liz Truss have a dog? <laughs> this is Blondie, who was owned oh, no. by um, famous animal lover Adolf Hitler. Tom, I can't believe you've gone there. Blondie is your number three. Well, Nixon, of course, um, Nixon. Hitler. <laughs> Hitler was a big dog lover, wasn't he? Well, our Democrats cheer. Because um, Hitler had been messing around with dogs in the trenches in World War I. Because I, in my adventure in time, the Second World War, it's a great opportunity for me to advertise my excellent children's book in which um, the Fuhrer appears as a, as a major character. The book begins with Hitler, and um, he's just a young man, and he's in the trenches, and he has a dog. And when I wrote the first draft of that chapter, and I showed it to my son, he said, you've got to cut the dog, because all children will assume that a, a young man uh, yes, with a dog... is the hero. It's the hero. <laughs> yeah. And Hitler had a dog, which was a, a Jack Russell, a white Jack Russell, supposedly, initially the property of a British soldier, a Tommy, 
who had found its way into the trenches. And Hitler had adopted the dog and he called so he'd him... he'd stolen it. He'd stolen an Englishman's pet. <laughs> well, Hitler called him Fuschel, which means little fox. And uh, he wrote, I think later, he says, um, how many times I used to study my dog Fuschel. I used to watch him as if he was a man. It was crazy how fond I was of that beast. And the story is that in 1917, Hitler moves down the line. His, reg- his sort of regiment moved to Alsace, I think. And um, a railroad official offers Nixon some money for the dog. And Nixon says, no, you, can, you could offer me 200,000 marks and I wouldn't part with him. But then when they come to leave, Nixon, uh, so have I called him Nixon again? Anyway, yes. oh no, Hitler, Hitler very Freudian slip. Terrible. This is terrible. Um, Hitler goes off and he leaves the. He can't find the dog, and he assumes the railroad official may have stolen him. And he never sees the dog again. Oh, and Tom, this is a great what if of history, isn't it? Yes. If um, Hitler had found that dog, maybe he'd have been a nicer person. Maybe, maybe, maybe but his no. demons wouldn't have been quite so so yeah, murderous. Exactly. But he had lots of dogs. Actually, he had lots. Of, he was very into German shepherds, which were hugely right. popular with the kind of nationalist yes. right because Absolutely. they were, you know. Aryan dogs, if that's such a thing. Well, so their full name is Canis Lupus Familiaris. And Lupus, of course, is wolf in Latin. And um, the Nazis were very, very into uh, dogs who were close to wolves because wolves were seen as, you know, belonging to the primordial German forest and right. embodying Aryan kind of values of ferocity and strength and things like that. Um, and the most famous of all the German shepherds. Um, owned by Hitler was one that Martin Bormann, who also loved German Shepherds, gave him in 1941. And this is Blondie. Yeah. He loved Blondie, didn't he? He did. And Blondie featured a lot in um, Nazi propaganda. So Hitler was always kind of shown with Blondie, um, kept her by his side in his various retreats and things like that. Yeah. And in 1945, when he goes to the bunker, he, he takes Blondie with him into the bunker. And lets her sleep on the bed, which um, Ava Brown was, was not keen on at all. She had dogs of her own, though. Scottish Terriers again. Okay. W- one of whom, w- weirdly, was called Stasi. Stasi. So, what? I, Strange. St- the Stasi is the East German. Yeah, secret police. There's a Graham Hancock series in this, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> so, why did, why did they name their security service after a, a dog owned by Hitler's wife? Because Blonde is not a good name for a security service. I suppose that's true. Yes, I suppose that's true. Anyway, so um, March 1945, even as the the, the Soviets are closing in, Mm. Blondie has a whole litter of puppies, you know, which is lovely of Hitler. But then 29th of April, he knows it's all over. Yeah. He's got the cyanide. He's not certain it's going to work. Yeah. And so he tries it out on Blondie. Uh, It does work. He's absolutely distraught when... uh, when Blondie dies. What do you think was going to happen? I mean, that's madness. Give a dog cyanide. And- well, I suppose, I mean, I suppose part of him would have wanted, would have wanted it to work because then he'd know that he'd, he'd be able to commit suicide and it would, yeah. you know, he wouldn't be captured. But I guess the other half of him, he'd be very sad at losing Blondie, who he obviously adored. And then 30th of April, um, Hitler commits suicide, Ava as well. Uh, and after they have, they're, after they're both dead, their guards get the puppies that Blondie's just delivered and shoot them all. Oh my god! And they get burned with the bodies of. They burn the dogs as well. Hitler and Amy, yeah. In case the bodies fell into the possession of the Red Army, it's crazy. Well, I don't know what happened to Stasi. It's an odd one, isn't it? Choosing Hitler's dog because it humanizes Hitler. I mean, actually, what my son said about having Hitler with a dog in the the children's history book was right in a way. It's interesting how possession of an animal, you know, having a relationship with an animal, does humanize people, even terrible villains. 
I think it's it's interesting that people are fascinated by Hitler and his dogs because we think of Hitler as inhuman, as cold, as unfeeling, and and to show to see him, you know. But isn't isn't it a part of it? You say inhuman. I mean, famously, he's vegetarian because he doesn't yes. want to to eat the meat of of dead animals, like you, Tom, like me. Um, well, I'm not really. I eat fish as well. Don't care about fish. Um, I mean, the thing the thing is, isn't it that it's Hitler's devotion to animals rather than to humans that is so unsettling about him. Yeah. In a way it humanizes him, but in another way, it kind of just intensifies the spendthrift way in which he destroys millions and millions of people's lives without without care. I think that's actually a good point. It probably is more unsettling than if he was because if he was complete had no emotions at he all. He was just evil or yes. Yeah. It's more yeah. unsettling, agreed. Tom, we've we've spent so long talking about these dogs that we're gonna run out of time. We've got four more to come. Yeah. God, I can't wait. Um, so listen, join us after the break for more of history's greatest dogs. Woof, woof. Oh, Tom. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have terrible consequences. For instance, look at all the conflicts throughout history. I wonder how many of them could have been solved if they just talked things out. And Tom, I have a confession for our listeners. As you know, I've been really struggling with anxiety about the massive series that we've got coming on the rest of history, all the prep we have to do for that series on the French Revolution, the First World War. I mean, it's all mounting up, isn't it? And when we talked it out, I felt so much better now that I got all those crippling anxieties and insecurities off my chest. If you want to talk, you can always talk to me. But if not, then I highly recommend therapy. It can help you learn positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It empowers you, Dominic, to be the best version of yourself. If you want to give therapy a try, why not check out BetterHelp? It's entirely online, it's convenient and flexible, and it's really easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash rest is history today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash rest is history. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are talking 
dogs uh, <laughs> with top dog lover Tom Holland. Tom, I believe you've got an apology to make to the listeners. Is that right? <laughs> I do have an apology to make. So you may have been hearing a strange creaking sound. And that strange creaking sound comes from the chair of our friends who I'm still up in scotland at the moment and uh, we have no wi-fi on our side of the tweed so i cross over and i'm using theirs definitely the chair tom and it is definitely the chair and not the ghost of your dandy dinmont dog (laughs) jakey oh i wish it was (laughs) bless him you've got four dogs and you've got half an hour four dogs yes so the fourth one so there are a lot of kind of mystic legendary dogs i could have chosen argus who was the dog of Odysseus, very famous. You remember the story that Odysseus has been away the Trojan War for 10 years and then he's been wandering around the the Mediterranean for another 10 years and he arrives back in Ithaca disguised as a beggar and no one recognises him except for Argus, his old dog who's been thrown out by the evil suitors from the palace and is lying on a dung heap. And as Odysseus walks by, cunningly disguised as a beggar, he looks up, recognises him, whimpers, licks his hand and dies. So very moving. But I'm not including him because Argus didn't actually exist. Okay. Instead, on the whole kind of mythic legendary dog front, I've gone for one who might have existed. Might. So so it's a great story. And this dog is called Gellert. And Gellert is supposed to have been owned by Llewellyn the Great, who was the great Welsh prince in the first half of the 13th century. King of Gwyneth. Yeah. The last great flourishing of independent Wales before the conquest of Edward I. And the story goes that Llewellyn the Great, he has a little baby boy. The baby boy is left in a crib guarded by Gellert, who is his dog. Okay. And Llewellyn the Great goes out hunting, leaves Gellert behind to stand guard over his son. Llewellyn has a great day out shooting deer or whatever it is he's doing. Comes back. And he finds Gellert lying next to an empty crib and Gellert has blood all over his jaws. And so Llewellyn leaps to the logical conclusion that Gellert has eaten the baby. And so he draws his sword and slices off Gellert's head, cleans his sword, wanders into the next room. And there he hears the cries of his baby son. And he looks round and there is a dead wolf. Tom. Which had attacked the child, but been killed by Gellert. So Gellert had actually died defending the baby boy. And that's why he had blood all over his jaws. And Llewellyn, of course, is absolutely crippled with remorse and sense of bereavement. Yeah. And he buries the dog with tremendous ceremony. And the story goes that from that point on, he never smiled again. Crikey. That is a sad story, isn't it? It is a sad story. The the thing that slightly worries me about that story is I think I've heard that story before in other contexts. Like what? I don't know, but it just seems to me like you can't You can't bring your scepticism to such a moving tale and not be able to justify it. That feels to me like a... Icelandic saga stroke Greek myth dog story. No, Do you not it think? Ha- it, no, it definitely happened to Ellen. And the proof of that is that it was written up in a splendid poem in the 18th century by a guy called William Robert Spencer. He kind of hung out with the Whigs, with Charles James Fox and all the lads. Oh, yeah. Holland House. Prince Regent, Sheridan, Holland House, all that yeah. kind of thing. And he wrote um, a great poem about this. Shall I read a, a section of it? I think you should read the whole poem, frankly. I can't because it's enormously long. It's one of those 18th century very long <laughs> poems. <laughs> right, okay. So this is after Llewellyn has come in and he's full of remorse. And yeah. uh, he raises a tomb for Gellert and it stands in the forest. And here never could the spearman past or forester unmoved. Here oft the tear besprinkled grass Llewellyn's sorrow proved. And here he hung his horn and spear, and there, as evening fell, 
In fancy's ear, he oft would hear poor Gellert's dying yell. And till great Snowdon's rocks grow old and cease the storm to brave, the consecrated spot shall hold the name of Gellert's grave. Tom, I think there was a bit of a tremble in your voice during some of that poem. Because it's very moving, isn't it? It's so moving. Poor Gellert. And our Welsh listeners sometimes complain that we don't do enough Welsh history. Yeah. I think that they will feel that we have more than adequately... That beautiful reading from an English poem. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're English as well. We're paying homage to the glories of this splendid Welsh dog. Okay, very good. I enjoyed that, Gellert. I, I don't believe Gellert existed, but I enjoyed the uh, poem nonetheless. So give us a dog that did exist. Well, the next dog is uh, it's a Pekingese. Okay. In fact, it's the very first Pekingese that was brought to Britain. It was brought to Britain in 1861. And it's a story that doesn't reflect tremendously well on Britain. Oh, Tom, do you think we do this podcast to hear this sort of nonsense? And when I tell you that the Pekingese was given to Queen Victoria and she named it Lutie, (laughs) you may be able to guess how and why this dog was obtained when I remind you that in 1860, so the year before it arrives back in Britain, an Anglo-French force had marched on Beijing, on Peking, as they called it then, um, and uh, sacked the old summer palace. Oh, yeah, the burning of the summer palace. Very great scene in Flashman. Right. So you know all about it from Flashman. So just tell us about the sack of the summer palace. So it's the Second Opium War. Yeah. So, okay. So the summer palace was the, um, it's such a terrible cliche, but I'm going to say it anyway, it was the jewel in the crown of the Chinese emperor's possessions. It's got these magnificent gardens and pavilions. It's absolutely stuffed with treasures, with artworks, with vases, with all this sort of stuff. Because it's basically, it's the British Museum crossed with, what, Regent's Park? Yeah, I guess so. And crossed with Buckingham Palace, I suppose, if yeah. you could imagine it all in one complex. Yeah. It's the Second Opium War. The Chinese had seized the... Allied negotiators, the delegates, and they tortured them and stuff. It's absolutely superbly done, the pathos of it, in George MacDonald Fraser's novel. Because Lord Elgin, who's, who's the, the son, son of, of yes, the Lord Elgin, as in the Parthenon Fraser's, he basically orders the destruction of the Summer Palace in retribution for what's happened to sort of Allied the European negotiators. And... The British and French just basically storm in, they burn, they smash, they steal, they kind of level the whole thing. They, they Actually, General Gordon, probably the preeminent friend of the rest of his history, he was present at the sack of, of the and summer He Paris. was appalled by it, wasn't he? He was. He said uh, it made one's heart sore, as in sore, as in painful, yeah. to see the burning of all the artworks and the gold ornaments being destroyed and the things being torn down and vases smashed, but also people making off with tons and tons of stuff. Gordon said it was wretchedly demoralizing work for an army. Yeah. And uh, Victor Hugo, he compared France and Britain to bandits. So it was seen at the time as a, a pretty shocking thing to have done. And so that's why the idea of looting yeah. is kind of very much in the air and why Queen Victoria, when she is presented with this little dog, kind of makes a joke of it. So it was found by a guy called John Hart Dunn, who was a military man, served in the Crimean War, very patriotic. When he was out in China serving with the French, he would make a point whenever they captured somewhere of running up the Union Jack before the tricolor could be raised over conquered right. forts. And so he's there in the Summer Palace, and he wrote this autobiography later, and he described looting Lutie, and he described her as a pretty little dog, smaller than any King Charles, a real Chinese sleeve dog. It had silver bells around its neck, and people say it is the most perfect little beauty they ever saw. 
And so he takes this little dog. Uh, I mean, it has to be said in exactly the same way that the Chinese, when they go on imperial adventures, bring animals back. Okay. You know, like the Romans, the Chinese had been kind of bringing animals as evidence of their conquests, yeah. as evidence of their triumphs back to their capital. And now basically John Hart Dunn is doing the same because he takes this Pekingese back to England on the voyage home. He has a kind of cap and he has a little Pekingese sleep in it and he presents it to Queen Victoria. And Victoria, I'm afraid to say, slightly disgraces herself, not only by giving her the name that she gives the dog. This is honest. I guess it is honest, but she doesn't look after Lutie at all well. So Luti is a palace dog yeah. and therefore is used to being fed delicate, you know, perfectly cooked portions of chicken, <laughs> delicious, soft, light rice. But Queen Victoria feeds her on offal, which is very de classe. I think it's trying to build the dog up. Yeah. And Luti is painted by a German student of Edwin Landseer, as in Monarch of the Glen. Yeah. Very popular painter with Queen Victoria. Um, but then once she's been painted, she gets taken away to the kennels in Windsor and Queen Victoria basically ignores her. And she died in 1872 and is buried in an unmarked grave. An unmarked grave. So I guess if you wanted, you know, a metaphor, if you were... If you, if you were straining. If you were being harsh on the British Empire, yeah. Luti would be quite a good metaphor. Okay. Tom, can you remedy this <laughs> with a more patriotic dog? Yes. Good. I absolutely can. Splendid. Because obviously we are a very patriotic podcast, and so I didn't want to leave it on that note. No. So now we come to very much a friend of the show, Admiral Collingwood who people who listen to our episode on the Battle of Trafalgar will remember. Cuthbert Collingwood, hero of the battles of Cape St. Vincent, of Trafalgar, kind of Nelson's right-hand man, friend, successor. And again, I'm up here in, uh, well, I've crossed the Tweed. So I was in Scotland and now I'm in England, mm -hmm. in um, the northeast of England, which is very much where Cuthbert Collingwood came from. So he was born and raised in Newcastle. Named after St. Cuthbert. Tom. It all stitches together. Yeah. So anyway, so he's very much a naval man. In 1790, he is given Bounce, this little puppy. And what's Bounce? Not not entirely sure. Oh, okay. So basically a generic dog. <laughs> a generic dog. <laughs> okay. People can use their imaginations. He could be massive. He could be tiny. I don't think he's massive. I don't think he's tiny. I don't think he's massive. I think he's kind of... A medium dog. <laughs> he's a medium dog. He's an average dog. Yeah, okay. And 1790, when Collingwood gets Bounce, he is due to go off on a trip to the Caribbean. And so he takes Bounce with him and he writes back to his wife and says that Bounce is a very good dog, delights in the ship, swims after him whenever he goes in the boat. So it's good to know that Bounce is getting his sea legs. Yeah. And from that point on, whenever Collingwood goes to sea, he takes Bounce with him. Bounce isn't entirely suited. I mean, he's, he's, fine. he's got sea legs, but he's not entirely suited to um, naval engagements because he doesn't like loud noises. But no dog does. Dogs hate fireworks. Exactly. I don't know what they would make of a cannon. Exactly. So having loads of cannon firing. So he, whenever there's a battle being fought, Bounce kind of went below decks and kind of hid beneath a blanket. Yeah. And after the battle, Collingwood would go and find Bounce. Bounce would be shaking and, and shivering under his blanket, deep in the bowels of the ship. And Collingwood would pick Bounce up, stroke him and sing him a beautiful lullaby which oh. was adapted from famous lines in Much Do About Nothing, Shakespeare's play. And it went, sigh no more, Bouncy, sigh no more. Dogs were deceivers never. Though ne'er you put one foot on shore, trust your master ever. Then sigh not so, but let us go where dinner's daily ready, converting all the sounds of woe to high fiddy diddy. To high fiddy diddy. So we've had some great poetry on this episode. We, we? 
we have. That doesn't <laughs> strike the martial note for me, Tom, I have to say. But that's what's so charming about Collingwood. Yeah, I guess so. He's a hard man in battle, wins a yeah. lot of battles, but loves his dog. Yeah. And when he's back at home, he's not at home often because he's off fighting Napoleon. But when he is there, he lives in Morpeth outside Newcastle. He goes for walks over the hills, takes bounce with him. And wherever he goes, he reaches into his pocket for some acorns and he plants them oh. so that they will grow into oaks so that, say, in 2023, yeah. Britain will be able to chop down oaks and, and make great ships. Make great ships. <laughs> oh, this <laughs> is the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so Collingwood's oaks that he planted with bounce are still standing, are they? Yes. Oh, splendid. You know, they're ready to be chopped down and turned into ships yeah. of the line right Excellent. now. Excellent. Crikey, very good. So Bounce is with Collingwood when Collingwood goes over to HMS Victory, to Nelson's cabin, to uh, discuss the battle plans before Trafalgar. Yeah, so Bounce is there. I mean, obviously, in the battle itself, he's below decks, shivering yeah. underneath a blanket. I mean, he probably doesn't contribute much to the discussion, presumably. Well, I suppose he kind of, he probably provides inspiration to the British captains, an example of a British dog. Yeah, British pluck, the bulldog spirit. I mean, he's not a bulldog, but well, he could be a bulldog because we don't know what he is. I imagine he's not a French poodle. No, definitely no, not. No. That would be very bad. Not some fancy Frenchified dandy dog. Well, although, Dominic, so after the Battle of Trafalgar, yeah. he becomes Baron Collingwood of Calderburn and Hethpool in the county of Northumberland, which means, of course, that Bounce has been elevated. And Collingwood writes back to his family saying that he is all out of patience with Bounce. The consequential airs he gives himself since he became a right honourable dog are insufferable. He considers it beneath his dignity to play with commoners' dogs and truly thinks that he does them grace when he cons to lift up his leg against them. So that's quite sad. Is Collingwood serious? Or is he... No, it's naval banter, Dominic. Right, okay, just checking. Four years after Trafalgar, uh, Bounce is getting very old. He's become rheumatic. And he falls overboard and drowns. Oh, my God. You can't just come out with that, Tom, with no preparation. Well, so Collingwood was distraught and again wrote back and said that what a huge loss Bounce was. I have few comforts, but he was one for he loved me. Everybody sorrows for him. He was wiser than many who hold their heads higher and was grateful to those who were kind to him. This is one of our most poignant podcasts. Well, it gets even more poignant because the crew on Collingwood's ship, yeah. even though they couldn't give Bounce a proper naval burial because obviously he'd fallen overboard and drowned, they make a, a small coffin the size of the dog mm. and they drape it in a Union Jack and then they give it a burial at sea. Good for them. That reflects very well on the Royal Navy. And they then pull into, uh, they go to the Balearic Isles, they pull into Mallorca, and the crew buy Collingwood a new bounce. They dress him as a sailor with a neck scarf. A neck scarf. He would uh, apparently parade with the Marines. I don't want to alienate our American listeners, who I know are very keen on this, but I don't really approve of a dog in clothes. No, well. So dressing him as a sailor, I don't approve of. Yeah, I hear you. But the fact remains that Bounce 2 stayed on board ship even after Collingwood himself had died. Really? And so what happened to Bounce? The junior i don't know he was just kind of looked like he became the the ship dog okay so that's a stirring and happy story i think that is a nice story and you've got one more to go tom so i still think checkers is the best dog but that's because i'm biased but bounce i have to say is right up there it's very very close okay but could our final dog storm through to the title i think you'd agree that all of these dogs would make great films yeah well in fact um, great fries bobby has been a film but the final dog is a dog who was in loads of films as an actor um, and that is Rin Tin Tin. Oh, yeah. Very good choice. Who was, again, a German shepherd dog. Yeah. An extraordinary story. So Rin Tin Tin is a German shepherd dog 
but is born in France. Okay. On the Western Front in 1918, as the Allies are kind of pushing forward and the Germans are starting to retreat. Yeah. And during this great push, the Americans are, are rolling the German lines up. And a guy called Corporal Lee Duncan, who is in the US Army Air Service, is sent forward with a group of other men to secure a French village called Fleury to see if it would be a good place to kind of set up an airstrip. And they go there and they go to the German headquarters and they find it's been very badly damaged by bombs, that the Germans have fled. But there, there is a kennel. And in the kennel, there is a German shepherd. And she has just given birth to a litter of five tiny puppies. And they're so small that they haven't even opened their eyes yet. Duncan rescues the, the dogs, the mother and the puppies, and he brings them back to his unit. And he gives away all the dogs, including the mother and the puppies, but he keeps two, a boy and a girl. Okay. And he calls the boy Rintintin, and he calls the girl Nanette. Actually, Rintintin is probably Rintintin, actually, because these were good luck charms that were given to American soldiers by children in France. So Rintintin uh, and Nanette. Right. I did not know. Yeah. But Rintintin would not have been a name for a film star. No. So Rintintin he becomes, because Duncan smuggles the two puppies aboard the troop ship when they go back in 1919. I suppose they're not puppies by then, are they? They're no. kind of whatever, adolescent. Frisky adolescent dogs. Frisky adolescent. I mean, it must be tricky to keep them on the troop ship. Anyway, he gets them, he smuggles them across. Um, they get to America. Nanette, very sadly, I think dies in New York. I think he gets, she has, gets quarantined and dies. And so Duncan buys another dog, Nanette too. So a bit like we've had Bounce 2, we yeah. have Nanette do. He comes from um, California, from Los Angeles, and he takes Rintintin and Nanette with him back to LA. And when he gets to LA, he teaches Rintintin all kinds of tricks. And the particular thing that Rintintin can do is to jump enormous heights. And this obviously in LA, in Hollywood, where producers are always looking for kind of exciting stunts and things that they can put into the movies. This becomes something that attracts the, uh, the casting directors. And so in 1922, Rin Tin Tin is actually cast as a wolf in a film called The Man from Hell's River. And he plays the wolf tremendously well. So much so that the following year in 1923, he gets his first lead. And he appears in 27 movies in all. Wow. He is such a star that he comes to be called the mortgage lifter by people in Hollywood. Why? Because he makes films that enables people to pay off their mortgages. <laughs> That's a good name. And actually, the guy who really, whose career really gets a lift from Rin Tin Tin is Daryl F. Zanuck, who is the guy who goes on to become the head of 20th Century Fox. So he, he, he starts his career as a screenwriter and he writes... For, for Rin Tin Tin? Yeah, he writes screenplays for Rin Tin Tin. And the story is that in 1929, when they have the first Oscars ceremony, that Rinton Tin is actually, he gets, he gets voted best actor. And the, the organisers of the Oscars, they're not going to have that. And so he gets disqualified. I think that's actually an urban myth. but That sounds utterly implausible. That's Greyfriars as Bobby standards of veracity. Gellert. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Meanwhile, Rinton Tin, you know, he's a Hollywood star. So he's having a great yeah. time with Nanette, hanging out with Nanette. So hold on, Nanette's not his sister. This isn't a Ptolemy-style arrangement. There's a slight Ptolemaic <laughs> vibe there because she's a replacement for the sister. 
Okay. But that's quite Hollywood, isn't it? I mean, it's quite Hollywood. I suppose so. So they have 48 puppies. 48? Yeah. But how many would you have in one go? I'm not familiar with... I don't know. Dog biology is, you know, a mystery to me. They're obviously very fond of each other. They're having a lot of fun by the pool, (laughs) hanging out, (laughs) keeping his Oscar. And then he dies in August 1932. And weirdly, his body is sent back to France. That is kind of strange. It's buried in a pet cemetery outside Paris. Oh, yeah. The Cimetière des Chiens et autres animaux domestiques. The very same. I wonder what else is buried in that. I don't know if if we have any listeners who who know who else, what other famous animals might be buried in there. Yeah. But Rintintin was unbelievably famous. So Anne Frank, um, in her diary, actually the second entry in her diary, writes of saying that she, you know, she longed to have a dog like Rintintin. Yeah, I think you know, the thing about Rintintin is that he he's very energetic. He's an outdoors dog. He's jumping mm. off walls and doing stunts and things like that. And you know, it's so sad that Anne Frank is. I mean, that's the kind of the pathos of it. Yeah. That she's locked up and... Pining for a dog. Pining for a dog. Rin Tin Tin obviously predates Lassie. I mean, Lassie was the cinematic dog that I was most familiar with growing up. Rin Tin Tin is the trailblazer. Yeah. Lassie's a pale shadow of Rin Tin Tin, I suppose. I don't know. I mean, it's... Being too harsh to Lassie. No, I think you're a bit harsh to Lassie. If but I was bit, ranking but... visual dogs, I'd put K9 first, <laughs> and then Rin Tin Tin, and then Lassie. I like a robot dog. Yeah, I hear you. I don't know whether Lassie has a, a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame because Rin Tin Tin does. Really? Do you want to do some live research? Sure. And see whether Lassie's got one. I bet, I mean, K9 wouldn't have one. So K9, we should explain for non-British listeners who are not very old, was Tom Baker's dog in Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was a mechanised dog. It's a bit like R2-D2, only it looked like a dog. So Tom, I have a great fact for you. I've done my live research. Yeah. Not on Wikipedia as some very cruel people sometimes allege about this podcast, but on in the Los Angeles Times. So I've gone straight to the source. Yeah. And what was it saying? There are three dogs on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Okay. So Rintintin, I'm guessing Lassie. So they're Lassie, Rintintin and Strongheart. Now, do you know who Strongheart no, is? never heard of Strongheart. Strongheart was also a veteran of the First World War. <laughs> Strongheart served with the German Red Cross in World War One, and in those days actually had a very distinguished name. Strongheart was known as Etzel von Uringen. Goodness. But I don't know anything else about Strongheart. What did Strongheart do? What were the films? Well, I'm going to do some more live research. Et- Here we are. Now I am on Wikipedia. Etzel von Uringen, better known as Strongheart, 1917 to 1929, was a male, another German shepherd, third in his class at the Shepherd Dog Club of America, 1920. Were trained as a police dog in Berlin, served in the Red Cross, sold to America, and then appears in one, two, three, four, six films. Well, that's not very impressive compared to Rin Tin Tin's. Yeah, but be- makes his debut, Tom, before Rin Tin Tin. So, nineteen twenty-one, The Silent Call. So he is Cliff Richard to Rin Tin Tin's Beatles. Very much so. Etzel van Uringen, I call him by his real name. Immense in body and hind leg formation. In body and legs, better than either of the dogs above him. This is at the dog show. So, a very impressive dog, Tom. Did he ever appear with Rintintin? Tin? No. Imagine that. Born in Wrocław in Germany, uh, later in Poland, died in Los Angeles. His body was not returned to Europe, unlike Rintintin, Tin, but he was the subject of a book called Strongheart, the story of a wonder dog. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because, I mean, it's a bit like Charlie Chaplin or Boris Karloff, Europeans going over and becoming big big Hollywood stars, that both the dogs. We should have adopted that as the theme of this podcast. 
think we should have narrowed it down. We had a more focused podcast on emigre dogs in Hollywood in the 1920s. No, I I strongly disagree. I think that all seven of these dogs have been splendid. And so I mentioned that Laker, we're going to do another on that. We are also going to do another dog, Dominic, who didn't appear. And I'm surprised you didn't pick me up on that. And that is Boy, who is the dog owned by Prince Rupert, who had necromantic powers. Could cut bullets in his mouth. Yes. Am I right? Yes. But his necromantic powers were inadequate against Oliver Cromwell's Ironsides at the Battle of Marston Moor. And the reason that I left Boy off is that I'm sure we'll be talking about him when we do our special on the English Civil War, which we will be doing. 12-part epic, yeah, one day. Um, So, Tom, if you could choose one dog of these dogs, which do you choose? Oh, I think Bounce. Really? Yeah. You like a naval dog? Yeah. And a patriotic dog? I like a patriotic dog. Part of me would actually love to have a dog called Lutie. I know that presents me in a very bad light. <laughs> it does present you in a very bad light. And I can imagine, Dominic, that, yeah. that were some of your critics to be listening to that, they would not be surprised. Yeah. But of course, they won't be listening to this. They'd rather no. boil their heads. All right. Well, that was a splendid, uh, what, what is it? A kind of gamble through... Um, <laughs> yes, a walk. Yeah. <laughs> We've taken you for a walk. Through history's greatest dogs. Tom, what will we be back with next week? I don't think we will be in the animal kingdom, will we? We will be back with the fall of Saigon. Crikey. So no less of the canine theme banter and more of the Oh my god, we should warn people right now. You do your Marlon Brando impersonation in that series, don't you? Yes, I do. The single most remarkable impersonation. Oh. It's very kind. I'm using that that phrase very <laughs> advisedly that you've ever done Thank in you. the history of the rest is history. Thank you. Even more remarkable than Marilyn Monroe, you think? Even more remarkable than Marilyn Monroe. So it's a two-parter. It's on the fall of Saigon and it's on the Vietnam syndrome and the legacy of the end of the Vietnam War in 70s America. So that's something to look forward to. Lots of treats to come after that. Uh, Tom? <laughs> was a tour de force thank Thank you you very much for that and we'll see you next time goodbye bye-bye thanks for listening to the rest is history for bonus episodes early access ad-free listening and access to our chat community please sign up at restishistorypod.com that's restishistorypod.com I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Caddy Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. 
He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.